Welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hello, I'm Peter Moore. There are very few traditional artisan watchmakers left in the UK nowadays. One company though, Struthers Watchmakers, has continued to thrive in the 21st century using many of the old traditional techniques to create objects of real beauty. Rebecca Struthers is one third of this business, along with her husband Craig and their watchdog Archie. And she's written a new book called Hands of Time, a watchmaker's history of time. It's a glorious work of non-fiction that weaves stories from the history of watchmaking with episodes from her own career, repairing and making these beautiful timepieces. The other day, I caught up with Rebecca to find out more about Hands of Time and to talk to her about one pivotal year in watchmaking history. Let me begin, Rebecca Struthers, by saying hello and welcome to Travels Through Time. You write in your new book, which is called The Hands of Time, that I make my living from time. Could you could you tell our listeners what you mean by that, please? So I am first and foremost a watchmaker. Um, I trained as a restorer before moving into making watches from scratch. And now, yeah, I write about time too. So everything I do is 24-7 time. My husband's also a watchmaker and we call our dog a watchdog. So he comes to work with us every day. <laughs> so it's uh, everything is time in this house. <laughs> Perfect. And I've been reading the book over the last week and I have to say it's a beautiful piece of nonfiction because you weave together the really interesting history of clocks and timepieces and time, the more broader subject, with your own personal story too. But I think we should probably start with the watches themselves because they really are objects of wonder. So I was reading about Marie Antoinette's um, watch the other day, which uh, is one of your little timepieces, and thinking how sophisticated, how much an expression of human skill it is. So could we just begin by talking about one watch like that to give people a flavour of the kind of abilities that have been distilled into them over time? Yeah, sure. I mean, we'll we'll talk about some of the earlier ones in a bit. But um, I mean, that one, for example, um, it, I think I could work on watches, I think, to the day I die, and I'll never cease to be amazed at some of the incredible things we've been able to do throughout history. So the Marie Antoinette watch was made over the turn of the 19th century. Um, and although we did have motors and lathes and things by then, we had none of the sort of technology that we have today. And yet the most complicated watch in the world at that point was created in the form of a pocket watch. Um, the, its maker, a guy called Abraham Louis Breguet is responsible for the most inventions that are still in use in mechanical watchmaking to this day. Um, he's a hero, I think, to my, to most watchmakers. And I think it, for me, the most extraordinary part of the, of the whole story was that, um, he was working in France and spent a, a short time in exile, um, during the French Revolution and kept his head whilst working for first the French royalty. And then in exile, he, well, he also worked for the English aristocracy. He made watches for Queen Charlotte as well. 
Um, then he returned to Paris and uh, his uh, workshop, which had been seized by the revolutionary regime, was refitted at state's expense to allow him to continue his work. And it's even rumoured that Napoleon would dress up in uh, disguise and visit his workshop. So he made watches for Napoleon and the Duke of Wellington. So this whole time he was making for all sides, but th- this guy was just too brilliant for anyone to... Um, to question and I just I just think it's the most he must have been the most phenomenal character all of the accounts from the time kind of describe him as this really humble um and reassuring chap he was very kind to his apprentices and would tip his outworkers which was quite unusual behavior for the time as well so just the most phenomenal watchmaker making the most incredible devices through one of the most tumultuous points in the history of Europe it's a story full of drama already, and um, I suppose the most uh, obvious function of a watch is to tell the time. But there's this wonderful word that you introduce us to very early on in the book, which is complications. Life's full of complications, but watches seem to be particularly full of them. I was wondering if you could give us a little list, maybe, of the kind of complications you would have found in that particular watch, for example. Sure. So a complication is the name we give to anything in a watch that is over and above its ability to tell the time. So that could include things like in this watch, a chronograph. So you've got a stopwatch that can run independently of the time telling of the watch. You can have repeating work and something called a grand sonnery, which is considered to this day as one of the greatest complications ever made. And that's a watch chiming out the time on finely tuned uh, gongs, which are made of wire, like piano wire. Um, And that can be set to silent or it can be set to strike. It can strike both as the watch is running to let you know what time it is just throughout the course of the day. Or it can be um, you can request it to strike so you can press a slide or a button and it will tell you the time on request as well. Um, You've got things like lunar phases. You can um, tell the phase of the moon on your watch, a perpetual calendar, which is a kind of calendar that can keep um, accurate uh, days of the month for hundreds of years, some of them, um, which is incredible to think that was not Breguet's invention that had already been around for sort of 20, 30 years by the time that he was incorporating it. So again, yeah, the idea that of having an autocorrect on your date um, is something that we still, with most mechanical watches, have to do ourselves. It was as early as um, the second half of the 18th century that mechanic watchmakers have managed to devise methods for doing that within the watch itself. And this is all something you can fit in the palm of your hand as well, which is another, these aren't huge devices that were like mounted to people's walls or at the top of turrets in, in castles or churches. This is something in the palm of your hand, which without modern magnification or tools is just, yeah, outstanding. It's extraordinary, really, isn't it? Now, I know um, I should give you um, a good word about Struthers watchmakers, and you can tell us which of these complications are available today. If someone was to turn up at your door, would you be able to um, provide any of these services as well? Yeah. I mean, we've just started branching out, so we're just starting to make a new watch that will have uh, lunar phases and a calendar with day day of the week and, and month indication on it too. But um, it's not a perpetual calendar. <laughs> Maybe that's one for the future. We're quite restrained in what we do in terms of complications because you do get to the point where you're t- making more of a scientific instrument than you are a watch. Um, and that's, for me, uh, coming at it as a designer, First and foremost, a watch is about telling the time for me. So I want that to be nice and clear. And then anything else on top of that is just a beautiful addition. Um, lunar 
phases are my favourite complication of them all. <laughs> Brilliant. Now, there's a strange quality to watches, which um, really comes across when you read your book, because they're, of course, they're designed to measure time accurately and to standardise human experience, I suppose, in a sense. But um, many fine watches have so much time distilled into them that when you look at them, they seem out of all proportion to the size. You write watches not only measure time, they're a manifestation of time. And this is something that I was thinking about a lot in terms of what an object is. I mean, this is maybe transcends the idea of, of watches themselves, but we live in a in a time where there's lots of talk about AI when computers can you know, spit out massive amounts of information very, very quickly. What you're doing is the kind of opposite, isn't it? You're spending an enormous amount of time on very small things, but there's real value there, isn't there? Um, value and I think pleasure. Um, there's a real beauty to be able to take time making things and I'm I'm someone who used to suffer really badly from anxiety when I was younger and I do feel like watchmaking has almost been part of my therapy in getting through that because you have to allow yourself the time to make things some of the watches we make um I mean, the longest one's taken over six years to complete and we've done restorations that have taken two or three years as well you know that it's just it's a job that can't be rushed when you're making things the way we do and forcing yourself to give yourself that space and time to create something is a wonderful way of removing that pressure. I suppose that society drives you to do things as efficiently as possible, when actually to do things in a really beautiful and traditional way is not an efficient way at all. I mean, there are much faster ways of making watches <laughs> than we do. We take very much the long way around, but this is the sort of techniques and methods that the watchmakers of old and the watchmakers I write about would have used too so it's kind of part one of my um, future projects I call it in inverted commas my retirement projects I don't think I'll ever retire is to make a watch without electricity so that's <laughs> so I'm going everyone else is looking to the future and I'm just looking as far back as I can <laughs> for inspiration for my next project there's another thing I want to ask you about, which is there's a very strong medical strand which runs through the book. It begins very early on with your ambition as a child to be a pathologist and this, I suppose, attraction you have to um, solving puzzles, but looking at things very carefully for clues. And then towards the end, you write about um, the disproportionate number of your clients that turn out to be surgeons. And um, there's more here too, which I won't talk about um, just now. But I did want to ask about this kind of connection between the, the kind of precision work you do and the precision work which is encapsulated in medicine or science. Could you talk about that for a moment, please? Yeah. Um, I mean, one of our first clients when we set up our first business is a hand surgeon. And he was the first one to really get me thinking about it because he said, how watches remind him of the perfection of the human body. And particularly as a hand surgeon, I describe it in the book, he, he had this beautiful way of saying, when you open the hand, <laughs> which makes it sound a lot more um, elegant than the kind of gruesome thought that it actually is. But when you open the hand, it's um, almost robotic. We've got very little soft tissue in our hands. It's all tendons and sinews and bones. And you, you kind of get yourself into the zone or he, how he describes it as it's, this is a broken thing that needs to be fixed. And, um, in a similar way to when we're working on watches, you can't 
allow yourself to think about the value or the significance of the piece you're working on because the minute you let the gremlins in that's when things can go wrong um he described how it's the same when you're you're working on a patient the minute you allow yourself to think okay this is a real human being whose life is in my hands depending on me to fix them that's when you risk things going wrong it's just a machine and it's broken and it needs to be fixed and you take that very methodical stage by stage kind of fault finding get to the bottom of the problem and then go about resolving it and I think there's definitely something in that very methodical very calm very focused approach to what you're doing that completely overlaps yeah they are we are just a machine really our body's a beautiful natural work of machinery (laughs) um but I'm very glad I don't have the pressure of worrying about killing anyone while working that's that's a fair point but i think when when people look at photographs of you at work there is an element of um the surgery or like kind of the idea of the surgery room there you can imagine um all these precision instruments the the very channeled focus on a very small job and i think you write quite quite movingly towards the end about the importance of touch and understanding what kind of force or pressure a particular material can take mm. and it might differ between something which is old and which is something which is which is new and there's something of poetry in there isn't there it seems to me at least yeah yeah that was another talk i went to by professor Nebone, who's a cardiovascular surgeon who I mean, he was quite recently on the BBC talking about how um, that's my dog shaking off again. Um, he was quite recently on the BBC talking about having to send his medical students for sewing lessons because they weren't picking up these basic hand skills at school anymore, which is quite a worrying thought, isn't it? When you're being cut open on the operating table that the surgeon um, doesn't know how to stitch you back together again. And uh, yeah, you can imagine the jokes he's doing about in in hospital dramas. That's why the surgeon goes, stitch them up and then walks out the room. It's because they actually don't know how to sew them up themselves. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. But he he um, had actually worked with um, a textile worker to create a reproduction of the human abdomen using fabrics. And he took us through explaining to us these differences of how you understand that the tissues of a child are very different to the tissues within an elderly person. And you have to learn how they move, learn how they feel, because, you know, kids are very tough and elderly people, their tissues are very almost like tissue paper. So you've got to be incredibly careful and you have to learn the tolerances of humans like we learn the tolerances of the materials we work with, which in watchmaking is usually metal. And yeah, that, that changes with age too. Um, centuries old iron is very different or steel is very different to the modern steels that we work on. The same with brass. But ironically though, it's generally the other way around. So the older stuff generally tends to be better quality um, than the newer stuff. It does seem almost a paradox, but the the story that you tell really transcends watches because we we should talk about the the earlier parts of the book, when you look at time as a social construct, where did it come from? Where are these ideas of time? And there's a there's a, a nice passage when you talk about Alfred the Great um, using candles to mark out the passage of his days. And he would have a particular cas- uh, candle for a particular activity. 
And it actually reminded me of these old auctions they used to have by the candle and that the auction would finish when the candle gets to the bottom and uh, and goes out. Um, do you want to talk about this early part of the book, which is the pre-clock slash watch history yeah. of time? Yeah, so the, the watch arrives in our history about 500 years ago, so it's a relatively modern I mean, it's a very modern invention if you think about the history of humanity as a whole. Um, and the book starts over 40,000 years ago with the very first evidence we have of um, humans keeping time, um, which might be um, through lunar calendars. Obviously, these, these um, devices don't have an instruction manual with them. But we're looking at kind of early bone carvings, this early evidence of numeracy grows and develops over tens of thousands of years um, into calendars. So our first full annual calendars, which were the key to farming. Obviously, you've got to understand the repetition of seasonal change in order to farm. And when we could farm, we could develop cities and have more people in a smaller area. So understanding the time of duration was fundamental to the development of civilization as we know it. As for timekeepers themselves, um, that's going back sort of three and a half thousand years ago. We have the first sundials and things. So this is actually now we've got our days, our months of varying lengths and forms, depending on where you are in the world and your culture um, and the year. Now we start dividing up the day into smaller and smaller parcels of time. And this is where you kind of get that progression now from um, time being a more and more accurate thing. So that starts off yeah, with sundials, um, clepsydra as well. That's water clocks. Clepsydra literally means water thief. And the most simple of those were just like a bowl with a hole drilled in and that the water would uh, drain out of. And you'd know that it would take a certain amount of time for the water to drain out the bowl. Um, up to really complicated ones. So um, Plato designed a, um alarm clepsydra. And the, yeah, the phenomenal thing about clepsydra is that they just they seem to appear all over the world at a very similar time. And it's hard to say whether or not this is things traveling around or just this innate need we have to to structure ourselves and to kind of whether we're doing trade or traveling, we need to have an understanding of time. So it's a very natural thing for us to seek out. And yeah, clepsydra appear across North Africa, the Middle East, uh, China, um, in native North America. So this is kind of a, a universal phenomenon that goes on. And then right the way up to, yeah, we've got sort of our candle clocks, as you say, Alfred the Great sort of ring dials was another one. So portable sundials is something I go into too. The first sort of portable timekeepers almost. So those are the pre-watch watches. Um, and they were kind of the size of a, a man's wedding ring up to something a little bit larger, but they could be worn on the body. And that was before the watch, the only sort of portable timekeeper you could carry around with you throughout the day. Other than that, it would have been public mechanical clocks invented in the 14th century. And they used to spring up around Europe, in predominantly in churches. It was very much tied to religion and faith. And that's another thing that crops up a lot throughout the book is um, religion, because that has so much of an influence on our relationship with time itself, as well as the people making watches and the people wearing them. Mm. 
all of this, I think, serves as a beautiful platform for the history that we are going to talk about in a little bit more um, detail just now. So let me, um, we've talked about time, we've talked about measuring time, but let me give you opportunity to travel through time with us today, because I'm going to say to you what I say to everyone who comes on the podcast, if you could travel back through time to a particular year in the past, is there any particular calendar year that you would like to choose? Yeah, we're going to be going back to 1572. Well, there we go. You said before that this advent of watches, if you like, the big leap forward from just having church clocks or indeed having more measurable time available to lots of people happened about 500 years ago. So this takes us back, I suppose, to the 16th century. It's, of course, a time of Elizabeth I. She's a young queen, probably in, in the prime of life, I'd imagine. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what's going on in 1572 and what attracts you to that time? Yeah, well, to give you kind of a little bit of a build-up on where watches are at this point. So the watch was, or the first watch that we know about, um, was made in around 1505 by a guy called Peter Henlein. And he was um, from Nuremberg in South Germany. And um it's a bit of a sinister character, but uh, he actually ended up making this what might be the first watch in a Franciscan monastery um, while seeking sanctuary on the run from the law for possibly murdering someone. But um, well, that's the story for another day. And this watch was called um, a Pomanda watch. And these very, very early watches fell into these two styles. It was Pomanda, named after the kind of fragrant ball of incense. So they were typically round. Um, around the size of an egg. They were called the Nuremberg eggs is one of their nicknames for that reason. And um, made of brass. The, the movements were made almost completely of iron. And it is believed to have evolved out of locksmithing. So there are a lot of overlapping skills. Um, a lot of the kind of mechanisms and little parts inside of a watch were very similar to locks at the time. And Henlein himself was a locksmith before he started making watches. Um, the other style was called a timbre watch, so-called because they looked like a little drum. So you've got kind of round flat sides with a flat top and bottom on them. And they were worn as decorative pieces on the body. So you could wear them around your neck or you could wear them from a waistband. And that's something that remained the case really until gents tailoring in the late 18th and early 19th century. So this was very much the case over 1572. Watches were hugely valuable things as well. There was no shortcut back then. We're well and truly pre-industrialization. So these are the sort of things that could take years to make some of them. Average watchmaker training to this day to become a master watchmaker takes about 10 years. So um, hugely, hugely valuable things that only the wealthiest in society could afford, which would make sense to wear it on a chain around your neck or hanging from your waist so everyone can see how um, how loaded you are, bluntly. And it also fed into um, other aspects of our daily life as well, like uh, knowledge is status is something we take for granted today but to have um, the time to learn about the latest technical and scientific advances was something that was very much um, a fashion amongst aristocracy and uh, amongst royalty to be able to show that you know about this latest new technology that's coming out of South Germany or or and show your friends at dinner parties this beautiful thing um, even though they couldn't keep particularly good time and this, again, is something you see throughout this century, is that uh, some of the early ones even have sundials. It'll pop up the uh, gnomon in the, in the lid of them. So you could set the, the watch based on the position of the sun, which is more accurate than, than the watch was at the time. 
and they didn't run for all that long either. So they were very much baubles designed to be beautiful, beautiful things that kind of told the time, but not to the sort of level that we would expect um, out of our watches today. And that also kind of connects to they only had our hands, um, which from a watchmaker's perspective, I remember being told when I started studying that this was because they weren't accurate enough. Um, so the sort of watches that um, Elizabeth I, Mary Queen of Scots would have had, would have only had an hour hand. Um, and yes, they weren't that accurate. But there's also a strong uh, social and cultural theory that knowing the time to within the minute wasn't as important to us back then. You know, we were we were used to working to very different time standards than we are now. You know, there was none of this turn up for the office at nine o'clock every morning, otherwise you're going to get fired. And um, you met roughly when the sun was in this position of the sky on, on this day of the month and just hope that people turn up on time ish <laughs> and you're more patient. So minutes weren't as socially important and watches weren't as accurate, but there were still these incredibly important objects of desire and status and luxury. And you see them popping up in portrait paintings. So the first, very first watches, as you can imagine, the timbre is almost like from front on, it would look like a large locket. So they can be quite tricky to, unless they're open and someone's actually showing them, which you do see in portrait art of this time, it can be quite tricky. Um, there is a possible, possible watch um, in a hand's hold by the younger portrait of Henry VIII, which was painted in 1536. So we imagine now celebrities showing off their watches. This is something that was going on throughout this point in history. One more um, little question for you, because if, we, if we're thinking about the elite and them having these watches, I quite like the idea, actually, of, uh, of people living more approximately and not living to the minute. It's something um, quite attractive about that, especially to a 21st century mind. But... Would the average person who lived maybe in a in a in a village in a parish um, have a relationship with time via the clock on a church by this point? Would that be a common experience? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, church clocks are becoming more, and um, kind of in town centres and uh, town halls are becoming more prevalent at this point. Not everywhere has them, but there are more and more of them around. And they would have been, for most people, their kind of key point of touching base with what the time of day is. Again, they weren't even particularly accurate themselves. So clocks across London could have variations of several minutes. You get one clock ringing here and then you hear another one ringing the same time out like five minutes later. Um, so there was even variance then. But that would have been the most common point. We had interior clocks as well by this time so um, if you were again quite wealthy you would have clocks in your house wall clocks lantern clocks were a popular style at the time so um, anyone with servants servants would have had access to watches and clocks in that context too so people were more familiar with them but they weren't ultra commonplace certainly not like we think of having access to the time today Hello, it's Peter here. This episode of Travel Through Time is sponsored by Hodder and Stoughton, the home of great history publishing. Today, of course, we're talking to Rebecca Struthers, the author of Hands of Time, a watchmaker's history of time, which is out right now and has been called A True Joy by The Telegraph. Upcoming from Hodder is Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I, the mother and daughter who changed history. It's publishing on the 18th of May, and it's a compelling dual biography from Tracy Borman, the author of the book 
Crown and Scepter. The book tells the story of Anne Boleyn's relationship with and influence over her daughter Elizabeth, shedding new light on two of the most famous and influential women in English history. On the 25th of May, Hodder publishes X Marks the Spot, the story of archaeology in eight extraordinary discoveries. In it, Michael Scott traces the evolution of modern archaeology from colonial expeditions through to today's cutting-edge digs, unearthing traps, curses and buried treasure along the way. Sir Ranulph Fiennes called it alive with the spirit of adventures. It takes readers to the thrilling peaks of discovery. It's a must for those who like their history with a dash of Indiana Jones. All of these books are available in hardback, ebook, and on audio, online, and in bookshops. Mm, okay, that's really a um, good point. But I suppose it's watches, not clocks, that we're thinking about today. And we're going to look at some watches in a moment, I know. But there's one other piece of political context you want to tell us about 1572, which actually um, will help us make sense of the history and the, the three scenes which are going to follow. Sure. So this is, we've just uncovered the Rodolfi plot. And this um, was a Roman Catholic plot to to assassinate Elizabeth I and replace her with Mary, Queen of Scots, who at this point was um, in prison in Sheffield Castle. And uh, the plan was that uh, the Duke of Alba, who was Spanish, Catholic, was going to arrive from the Netherlands with 10,000 men, liberate Mary, um, she would marry Thomas Howard, who was a cousin of Elizabeth I, and they would take the throne and return England to being a Catholic country. It was riddled with issues from the start. So Roberto Rodolfi, he was a, a Florentine banker and a papal spy. It transpired that he was able to travel around Europe with his job quite easily without um, attracting much suspicion. However, the, the kind of the theory that they could arrive with all these people, that these 10,000 people would be enough to take on the entire armies and navies of England, um, was perhaps a little optimistic. And the, yeah, the idea that they, they reckoned they could get sort of 30 to 40,000 English Catholics, including members of the aristocracy, to join them, which when things were relatively calm in England at the time would have been a huge, huge gamble. Even other Catholics thought so. So it was Elizabeth's own intelligence service that, that um, found, discovered the plot. But she'd also received letters even from Catholics, prominent Catholics in um, in Europe. So Cosimo de Medici um, sent her a letter notifying her of, of the plot against her because there was this concern that if this went wrong, which there was a fair chance it would have done, that the consequences for the Catholics of England would have been brutal. So Catholics didn't want it happening too. Um, I mean, the Pope wanted it happening, but it was quite a divisive plan. And anyway, it, it all it all came out. Rodolfi was actually in Paris at the time, so he got off scot free, um, and ended up living out most of his life back in Florence. Thomas Howard was not as lucky. Mm. I know there's one. I was looking um, at the history of the the plot as well beforehand. It's amazing how many people were involved. You have King Philip. The, the second of Spain, Pope uh, Pius V, 
There's the Spanish ambassador, Thomas Howard, who, as you say, doesn't um, fare massively um, well. This is, a, what should we say, a daunting collection of people for Elizabeth to face. And it probably reminds us, this is a broader historical point rather than one connected with your book, but just how much there must have been an a feeling or an atmosphere of paranoia around the early part of her reign because she was never quite as secure really as um as she seems to us today when we look back at this kind of good queen bess narrative which is in in popular history but if that all sets the context for what's happening at the start of 1572 Shall we go and have a look at how this intersects with stories in your book through three different scenes? Because I know there's a few specific watches which will help us make sense of all of this politics as well. So where should we go to first for the first of your three, please? So let's head to Sheffield Castle and Mary, Queen of Scots, I think. Right. OK. Well, I know this is, yeah, this is a great moment in the book, so I'll let you explain what's happening. Sure. So Mary was actually in on the plot. She was fairly desperate by this point. So she was actually in her fourth year of imprisonment. She was 29 years of age at this point and um, desperate to get out. Sheffield Castle was not a nice place to be held. It was around 300 years old at the time, medieval castle. So very cold, very drafty, very smelly and damp. And Mary's health suffered terribly over the course of her imprisonment. So you can understand her desperation to um, to escape her lodgings. But uh, yeah, I mean, she, ultimately she would be there for 14 years of her life. But this was kind of her first attempt at getting out and went terribly wrong. It was in the June, June of that year that Thomas Howard was executed. So you can imagine how scared Mary must have been I mean you're talking about Elizabeth how insecure she would have been she was also holding another queen as prisoner who Mary would have been very aware at um, the desperation of her situation at this point to see someone technically a co-conspirator being executed at Tower Hill so yes I mean her her position was incredibly uncertain and um, Mm -hmm. she's significant to the story within my book because there is a watch that uh, was reported to be hers that is currently in the collection of the clockmakers company in London and um, it's in the form of a skull so this comes out of these early watches the pomander and the uh, timbre watches um, into as, as more and more people want them um, they turn or transform into a style that we call form watches and they're called form watches because they are literally in the form of something else so this is carrying on with the idea of ornamentation and extravagance and, and watches as toys and playthings. Um, they can be made into flower buds, animals, you get little hairs, there's a beautiful snail at the British Museum. And they could be crucifixes, they could be Bibles, um, and they could be skulls. And this is kind of very much within that memento mori feel. So they would have these Latin inscriptions on them like memento mori, carpe diem, tempus fugit. All of this kind of reminds us of the fleetingness of life. And uh, Mary was gifted um, one of these skull watches by Francis before they were married, um, who obviously passed away early on in their marriage um, and was the beginning of Mary's losing of everything, really. She, She lost Francis, she lost her mother, she ended up back in Scotland, she lost Scotland, and now she's in prison with this watch with her. And it's quite this powerful image, but uh, it really got me thinking about what this would have meant to her as an object. As a Catholic, skulls are, are quite important within religious allegory, within um, symbolism. 
And you see them quite often in, in portraits of saints and of hermits as, as posed with, with a skull because it's this connection between life and death, our life and the afterlife. And Mary was a devout believer, so she would have not necessarily seen a skull that's been maybe the sort of sinister thing we might see as reminders of today, but as a connection to her God and to her belief that no matter what happens in this life, that her worldly suffering will come to an end and she will be reunited with her God. And so in that way, they're almost quite reassuring, which is quite a powerful image to think about. The idea of Mary having it with her during her prayers and the ticking of watches of that era too is much slower. So it's almost closer to the beat of a human heart, like a metronome. You can hear that slowness of the tick of them is really powerful thing. So um, she kept it with her and it's said that she gave it to um, her servants the night before her execution with a note to gift it to her favourite lady in waiting, Larry Seaton. And that was, yeah, it that's how it went forward. Yeah. Can I ask you a bit more about the watch in specific then? How, how, if we were to imagine its size, what are we talking about for one of these skull watches? The palm of your hand or smaller than that maybe? So again, this is something yeah, you could easily hold within your hand. The watch that survives at the uh, Clockmakers Company collection is now almost certainly nothing to do with the original watch. Um, a former curator did some research and found that there's actually three stories of skull watches all tangled up into the one. And it's one of these perfect examples of rumour and myth twisting things around over the years until you find out that the definite watch that was someone's isn't, isn't what it appears to be. So in all likelihood, we'll never know whether or not Mary's watch has survived the, the test of time. But remarkably, that watch is still one of the favourite pieces in their collection, despite the, <laughs> despite the fact it's not um, not what it reports to be. But still, the, I mean, these watches were quite commonly made in areas of France by Huguenot craftsmen. So the Huguenots were made up of some incredible goldsmiths, uh, silversmiths and watch and clock makers. And it's quite likely, obviously, with, with it being bought for her by Francis, that this was made by Huguenot artisans in France at the time which is kind of another one of the ironies I look at is that you have the Huguenots were undergoing persecution in France for being Protestants in a Catholic country, while Mary had this watch being persecuted as a Catholic in a Protestant country. Mm. So whether or not that's something she'd have reflected on, I don't know. She was certainly sympathetic to the Protestant cause and made a big point of trying to make that clear, certainly when she arrived in uh, Scotland. Mm. It seems to me such a powerful object in the sense that watches do symbolise um, possibility as well as accuracy. And the idea of having that as one of the few um, prized possessions of a former life when you're imprisoned um, and your possibilities have shrunk to to almost nothing makes it really, really charged. You explained before about the the skull and the symbolism of that. How many, should we imagine this as being one of a, a great number of different skull watches that existed? Or is it quite an, a distinctive and unique thing in this case? I mean, at this point in history, there weren't vast numbers of watches around us because it was impossible to create vast numbers. So by modern context, there'd have been a very small number of them. Mm. Um, it wouldn't have been unique. There are others that exist of that era. So it was one of the popular designs within form watches of those that exist. So she wouldn't have been the only one. Um, and I can imagine them being 
quite popular, especially as these sort of devotional devotional tools, I suppose. Mm. Okay, well, that's Mary's watch. Let's talk about another watch or another possible watch um, and someone who's quite closely related to Mary. Where do you want to go to next, please? So now we'll head to London and uh, visit the wardrobe of Elizabeth I. Now, this is really exciting because in 1572, we have what might be the description of the first ever wristwatch. But unfortunately, it's not survived either. <laughs> so we'll never be quite sure. And this this inventory was uh, drawn up describing something. Uh, I've got the, the quote for you. Here. It was an armlet or scalpel of gold all over fairly garnished with rubies and diamonds, having in the closing thereof a clock. And this is something you see quite often in literature of this era because watches are so new. The the name hadn't kind of isn't what we would refer to it as today. So you do quite often see watches being referred to as clocks. So certainly that uh, a clock that can be worn on the arm in some sort of armlet, bangle, cuff um, would be imply something more like what we would think of as a wristwatch today. Um, watch movements of this era weren't very small. They could be quite small, but they weren't tiny. So it would have been something bigger than we might consider a, a wristwatch to be today. But then certainly being covered in rubies and diamonds and um, being this huge gold armlet, I suspect the uh, watch might not have been the uh, main statement <laughs> of the piece anyway. But um, it sounds like an absolutely extraordinary piece. I love that idea of a clock being worn on the arm. That's uh, maybe we should um, go back to that description in a way. But does this, because it's such a tantalising snippet mm. in um, in the archives, it leaves us with lots of room for the imagination. Of course, we hear about the uh, the jewels that adorn it, making it very, very beautiful. Does it seem like the right time for a, a wristwatch to appear? Does it fit in the the broader picture of what's happening with watches? Yeah, absolutely. We're still wearing watches in very prominent locations around our neck, around our waist. Um, so to have something on the arm is again fitting in with that. You spent a lot of money on something or someone's given you something that is hugely valuable. So you want everyone to see it. So being on the arm would be a really perfect location to make sure everyone can see you've got the very latest. Again, the latest in technology. Has anyone else got one of these? Yeah, so it definitely fits in with um, what I would expect to be going on. At the, in the day yeah it's just a shame we don't know more about it we don't know whether she commissioned it herself or it was a gift um jewelry and and, and whether it's watches or luxurious objects were incredibly important to um, especially to monarchs at the time too as we've seen both with mary and some of the situations elizabeth was regularly finding herself in having these tangible high value small luxury goods that you could quickly stick in a suitcase and do a runner with if you uh, needed to get out of the country quickly because people were coming for, for you was uh, a useful thing to have to buy allegiances to trade to impress new allies so that's quite probably what happened to this this beautiful timepiece was either broken down to fund wars or could have been traded or gifted to someone in the hope that um, they wouldn't send their armies to come and invade <laughs> well, listen, Queen Elizabeth I is much celebrated in our history for many things, but I do like the idea that it might have been, um, and uh, you could say this is 
not it's uh, not something you can prove, but it's a nice thought at least that, that she might have been the first person to put a watch on the wrist. She she could, maybe it was her idea. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. That's a that's a thought to tantalise. But um, I'm not going to let you get away without um, doing a little bit of explanation about the technology at this point, because there's throughout the book you go to great pains to actually explain to readers, very ignorant readers like me, what's actually happening inside these watches. And um, in fact, there's a whole section at the end which which instructs people how to go about mending their own watches if they fancy a go. <laughs> I'm not sure how good an idea that is, but it's all there anyway. Imagine this watch of Elizabeth's did exist and arrived at uh, Struthers Watchmakers and you had the chance to open it up. What would you expect to find inside? So by Could this, you speculate? Yeah. Um, so th- by this point, and it would have been quite similar for Mary's as well, um, we've moved out of the iron movement stage. We figured out quite early on that creating a giant magnet as a precision mechanism was not a good idea. So, yeah, iron, iron movements were particularly temperamental. By this point, we had gilded brass plates and um, the steel and metal work would be limited sort of pinions within that. The wheels, um, which is like the gear train that we call them, were also made out of gilded brass. So it would have looked gold in colour from the outside and um, would have been decorated with uh, engraving. So particularly stars like Acanthus scroll, we call it, which is the beautiful leaf scroll work, um, pierced through with holes in them so you can see in, some of the parts moving inside. Um, this would have been really popular at the time too. Still, the movements are very, I think they're very beautiful things to look at, but they were still um, kind of second, almost second fiddle to the overall look of the piece. So things like the case design would have been really, really important. Um, you do get the feeling that, yeah, it's, it's not a second thought to the watchmaker, but obviously not as important to the overall reason why people are buying these pieces. They had something called a fusee as well, which is almost like a helter skelter that would, was invented, um, we believe, possibly, not sure, based on a crossbow designed by Leonardo da Vinci. And it was used to uh, even out the power of the spring in the watch show to help them become a little bit more accurate. Um, there was a, they used cat gut, which I'd like to reassure people it wasn't actually cat gut. It was usually donkeys and goats and things. Not that that's a huge amount better. Uh, line that would connect the health skelter fusee to another, to, to the mainspring barrel and it would even out power almost a bit like your gears on a bike. So that gearing up and down, gearing up the position of the gut line on the fusee as the power runs down, it exerts more force on the, uh, the fusee exerting more force through the train and that created a marginally, marginally more accurate watch. Um, the really big step forward was the invention of something called the hairspring, but that's like another hundred years down the line, really. Do any of these watches survive today? You can go and examine and, or our listeners could go and have a look at if they wanted to. Yeah, so there's some wonderful collections of early watches. Um, the snail I mentioned um, is on view at the British Museum, so that's in their watch and clock gallery. They have a few. They have one in the shape of a star, beautiful little star in the Clockmakers Company collection, and the... Um, not so Mary Queen of Scots watch <laughs> is there for you to see as well. Um, the V&A in London has um, a wonderful collection of, of early watches as well. And the mezzanine above there, I like a tour guide, the mezzanine above their uh, jewellery exhibition. And incredibly, you see them going through auction. 
So if you look at the sort of big auction houses like Sotheby's, Christie's, um, they do come up and they are in private collections around the world. So they really were built to last. I've got to sell a lot <laughs> yeah. of books, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wish you well. Listen, <laughs> it's a very nice picture, both Mary, Queen of Scots, and Elizabeth with their own watches. Um, I like the idea of them winding them up and tinkering with them and maybe giving them a rattle and hoping they might become a little bit more accurate. Um, <laughs> but we've got one last scene to fit in before we finish today. And this, I know, is something which is a huge catalytic event in your story. So do you want to take us to your third scene and tell us what it is, please? Yeah, so Nasi will be going to the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in Paris, which started the night of uh, between the 23rd and 24th of August. And this is now taking us away from the watches and to the watchmakers. So um, it was at a point where um, there were a lot of Huguenots, it's a French Protestant name, Huguenot um, visitors within Paris. Um, they'd been attending the wedding of uh, Henry Navarre, who had married um, uh, Margaret of Valois, who was Catholic. So Henry had been raised a Protestant, although he was now Catholic, and married a Catholic woman, and he would go on to be um, King Henry IV of France. So this is a huge momentous occasion for the Protestants of France, like a, a form of acceptance almost within this, what could be quite at times a hostile Catholic country. And um, so everyone had gathered to see the wedding and ultimately tensions started to raise. There was an assassination attempt on um, a senior Huguenot and ultimately um, and potentially rumoured to have been on the orders of Catherine de Medici, they closed the gates of Paris locking everyone inside and a riot ensued and the sort of figures vary wildly but anywhere between sort of two to three thousand Huguenots were were killed and tragically this inspired a whole string of other riots across France so again huge variation in numbers but as potentially as many as 10,000 Huguenots were were murdered over the course of kind of a few weeks that followed that and I think Huguenots had had a hard time for quite a while by this point and did over the following century. And the result was um, they became refugees. Uh, many of them were forced to either convert to Catholicism or flee the country on, on pain of death. Um, so understandably, many of them uh, sought sanctuary in their neighbouring Protestant countries, which included a um, place like the Netherlands, but also included England. So you get a lot of uh, these Huguenot settlers turning up, bringing these incredible craft skills with them um, in the capital. And this is where you start to see French names appearing on watches in London. So you get like Delanda, Cabrio. Um, one of the ones I, I mentioned in my book particularly was uh, David Bouguet or Bouquet. Um, you see a few different variations on the spelling. Uh, it wasn't uncommon for them to try and anglicise their name slightly to, to blend in more. And uh, you get these families of Huguenot artisans making watches that were, quite frankly, works of art. Uh, work quite often within family ties. So Bouguet's uh, son-in-law was a diamond cutter. You get enamelling being used on these pieces too. Gold work. Again, like a work of art as much as they are a watch. Yeah, it was, it was hugely important. So much so that um, they played a fundamental role in London going on to become what, well, they were, we refer to it to this day as the golden age of English watchmaking that ran through the 17th and 18th century. And Huguenot artisans fleeing the persecution um, from that massacre and the century that followed 
were a large part of the reason that the English industry went on to be what it became ultimately. So the repercussions went on for centuries after. And that sense of community is something that's still really present in the work that you do today, because I know you have lots of collaborative uh, projects where you're maybe working with people who have a particular skill with this and that and the other. It, probably it's a good time as well just for me to ask you about the part of Birmingham that you come from, which is very much rooted in, in, in the trade, the idea of the specialised artisan. Do you want to talk about that for a moment? Yeah, sure. I'm from um, an area called Perry Bar, which is just north of the centre and a stone's throw from the old jewellery quarter. And yeah, with watchmaking and jewellery making, the tradition of the subject was, or the tradition of the discipline was that um, you'd get very small workshops of people, maybe only one person or five people working together and would collaborate with other uh, artisans in the area so you get goldsmiths would work with uh, stone setters would work with mounters would work with engravers would work with lapidarists people who cut the stones too and you do have these kind of clusters usually again with a pub in the middle of them I think that's probably why I honed in on that because <laughs> so I can imagine it happening back then just as it does now you kind of you all get together after work and have a bit of a rant about your work stresses or whatever but also share what projects you're working on and and ideas and it it's a great way to innovate and create beautiful things when you're used to working on your own um and that's why it's something we're we're very keen on doing now so it's just me and Craig in our workshop but while we're working on a project our team it can expand to 20 to 30 people all with very very niche little disciplines like we have our own little discipline that we we do well, we're watchmakers, but we'll never be as good as these people are who spent their entire life dedicated to, say, enameling watch dials. So it's a really important part of that process. And um, I think the biggest difference now is uh, where it used to be very local. So you get areas like Clerkenwell in London, where they're famous for that kind of working style. Um, now we find people we work with over Instagram which is uh, something they de definitely didn't have back then. So um, we have uh, benefits in that way. But you still see this kind of even across Europe collaboration between artisans. A lot of the Huguenots would maintain family and friend links wherever their um, their family groups had ended up scattered across, across Europe. Mm, it's really interesting to trace all of that sense of community and I, I, I suppose enthusiasm and skill back to the the massacre that happened in Paris that day, but it, it is it is very true. And you mentioned Instagram, and you also mention in the book um, Samuel Pepys getting hold of a watch during this age, um, the golden age of watchmaking, I suppose, and treating it very much like a new iPhone, walking around with it and um, cradling yeah. it in his arms and not being quite sure what to do with it and then yeah. breaking it and so on. <laughs> and there's a real sense of, um, I don't know, a real sense of fun there and excitement and wonder as well, which is what, what I suppose must stay with you day after day when you go into work and work with these beautiful objects. Yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? If they could tell you stories... The things that for me is why I've always considered myself a watchmaker. Even when I started my training in the year one, you get to decide whether or not you want to be a watchmaker or a clockmaker. And I, without any kind of wavering on it, I always knew I wanted to be a watchmaker. And I think it is the way that they're these active participants in our life. We wear them on our body. They're hidden in our pocket. 
they follow us. They're not like a clock on a shelf somewhere, kind of hoping that the action happens in the same room as them. They're out there with us on the battlefield or in a prison. Marie Antoinette, ironically, while she was in prison, also asked for a simple breguet watch um, to be gifted to her. So even in her confinement, she sought solace in a watch as Mary, Queen of Scots, might have done in hers. And it's just, yeah, you just wish they could talk to you. And although they can't verbally talk, if you know how to study them, they can give you some clues, which is how I love researching them. You've learned how to expose their secrets or try to at least yeah. I suppose. yeah if you take them apart you can track things like um, restorers hidden marks and um, there's a photograph in my book of the first and currently only example i found is a fingerprint baked into the enamel on the reverse of a dial of a watch made in around 1780 um so this would have been an accident at a point when we didn't really understand how unique fingerprints were so it wouldn't have had any meaning or significance to the person who left it there uh, it's hidden behind the dial as well, so no one would normally see it except the watchmaker. And yeah, I took this dial off and I found it. Um, the reverse is literally it's another sheet of enamel, uh, like a greeny coloured glass, that is there for no other reason than to stop the dial from warping when the enamel is put on the front. That's all it does. Um, but there it was, this perfect fingerprint burnt into the enamel. So I'm guessing someone hurt themselves taking it out the kiln and touched it by accident. But it's just, yeah, again, that little that little contact with the past is really, I'll never know who, who it was who left it there. But it is like you're touching the same thing in the same place, your same thumb on the spot that someone sort of 250 years ago. It's really special. And you do actually find hidden signatures and marks and even messages inside some watches and there's a really striking bit early on actually as well excuse the pun but when you you mend a watch and you say this for the first time you can hear it going just as it did when the first person owned it or when the first maiden made it and i think that's a really touching point um and i don't know it just goes to what i think the book is which is might be a book about little machines but it's uh, a book with a a real lot of heart in it as well so i think that that really comes across as well listen i've got one last question to put your way and i'm sure you'll have loads of thoughts about this but we always offer our guests a chance for a bit of tangible history at the end if you could bring any object back from 1572 is there anything you'd like to have maybe to put into your collection which i know is already quite large but could get a bit bigger Oh, I would love it to get a bit bigger with Elizabeth the first watch. Um, I think that would be absolutely incredible. Uh, I think you can't not come back with that if that was a possibility. It'd be wonderful to know. Then you'd have the first potentially ever wristwatch made as worn by Elizabeth the first. Oh, my uh, imagine what that eavesdropped on. <laughs> it's almost um, it's almost worthy of one of these imaginative art competitions, isn't it? To imagine what it might have looked like, because we know just a, just enough to really entice us, but we don't have all the information. Mm. And to have it yourself would be something indeed. Yeah. Well, I've you know I've enjoyed um, this conversation very much. I've enjoyed the book even more, and it's been a real pleasure to spend time talking to you about it. Rebecca Struthers, thank you very much for coming on Travels Through Time. Thank you. That was me, Peter Moore, talking to Rebecca Struthers about her new book, Hands of Time, A Watchmaker's History of Time, is out now. As you heard, it's packed full of fabulous stories 
an insight and it's very much recommended by me indeed. For more as ever, do check out our website at tttpodcast.com. We'll be back with more very, very soon. But from me for now, that's it. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>